0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday. Tomorrow, of course, will be the big primetime hearing of the January 6th committee. And uh, there is evidence that it's having a cumulative effect. We will uh, talk about that also. In case you were looking for more data points about the uh, level of insanity in the Republican Party, uh, we are getting fascinating stories. (laughs) Out of Out of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Maryland, so let's start there with our guest, my colleague Bill Crystal, who joins us again. Thank you so much, Bill, for coming on the podcast.
1: Happy as always to be with you charlie
0: okay i, I let's talk about Maryland. I have here the Vice news story. A man who organized buses to Washington on January 6th tweeted during the Capitol riot that Vice President Mike Pence was a traitor, tried to impeach Maryland Republican Governor Larry Hogan over his actions to stem COVID, and spoke at a QAnon conference this spring just won the Republican nomination for Maryland governor. Now, you think I'm going to stop there, right? But they go on. And he's not even the most extreme candidate Maryland Republicans nominated for statewide office on Tuesday. His coattails helped his friend and ally Michael was it Perutka, a Christian nationalist and former board member of the Neo Confederate Secessionist League of the South, whose extreme views are almost too numerous to enumerate, win the GOP's nomination for attorney general. Um, and in something of an understatement, uh, they write their wins show how radicalized and conspiracy theory minded a significant segment of the Republican base has grown in response to COVID and Trump's lies about the 2020 election, even in a Democratic-leaning state like Maryland. So, Bill Crystal, what happened in Maryland last night?
1: You know, it's sometimes it's especially in the Democratic <laughs> states that the Republican base gets more radical. It's smaller, right? So in a mm-hmm. certain way, it's, and it's less concerned with winning. So sometimes that's a bit of a check, though it hasn't been in states like Pennsylvania. It doesn't look like it's going to be in Wisconsin. Uh, but but, mm-hmm. but in some places, it, it checks the craziness, whereas here, they can indulge in it because they probably don't win anyway. But it, just to make to dot the I and cross the T on that, because it's even what could to make the point even more strongly why did cox win he was endorsed by trump uh the, the person who lost was a cabinet member of in Gov, governor hogan's administration a two-term republican administration that was pretty she's immensely popular and popular in maryland yeah. governor hogan supported her campaigned for her and couldn't and she's a very you know, respectable candidate. I would say there were no obvious, you know, red flags or anything. And she couldn't win. So it shows how much, how, you know, how radicalized the base is. And look how powerful Trump remains with the base. I, no way Cox wins without Trump's endorsement. And in
0: Wisconsin, I mentioned this earlier, my home state of Wisconsin. Uh, we, we learned yesterday, I think, that Donald Trump actually called up the Republican Speaker of the State Assembly, Robin Voss, to pressure him to decertify the 2020 election. There was a Supreme Court ruling here that said that they improperly used drop boxes. Uh, Yeah, this is, you know, after the fact. And and, and Trump actually wants the Republicans to decertify the electoral votes from Wisconsin from the 2020 election. Robin Voss, who has done everything he can, really, to kiss up to, to Trump, is obviously not going to do that because it's unconstitutional. But today... Trump is doubling down on this, putting out a statement on what is a tr- truth social or whatever. So what's Speaker Robin Voss doing on the great uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling, declaring hundreds of thousands of Dropbox votes to be illegal? This is not a time for him to hide, but a time to act. I don't know his opponent in the upcoming primary, but feel feels certain he will do well if Speaker Voss doesn't move with gusto. Robin, don't let the voters of Wisconsin down. So... Here you have the former president of the United States taking, I think, literally the most insane position you could take, uh, asking Wisconsin Republicans to take back votes from an election that took place nearly two years ago. I mean, it's one thing to say that, that, that Trump is engaging in a big lie. I just kind of want to underline the fact that if you make a continuum of just the nuttiest possible positions on the election... Trump is always the captain and the quarterback of Team Crazy.
1: Yeah, and I mean, for which uh, one hopes, one expects at some point that we pay some price for that. Just on that Wisconsin Supreme Court opinion, as I understand, it was 4-3, it was controversial, yeah. whether it was right or not, that they shouldn't have gone ahead with the drop boxes as a way of handling the pandemic emergency and the need to let people vote right. remotely, so to speak, or, or uh, early and also, you know, safely. But no one has questioned the actual, they were real people who cast real votes. If the drop boxes hadn't been there, they would have gone to the polling place and cast the votes or to the community center and not done it through a drop box that was a convenience. Maybe the the court shouldn't have allowed it or the administration in Wisconsin, the executive branch, shouldn't have allowed it without legislation enabling it. That's, I guess, what the court decided and therefore going forward. As at least based on current law, there won't be those kinds of remote, those kinds of drop boxes. But there's no charge of actual fraud or impropriety. There's just a a kind of complicated issue of how much executive discretion, in a sense, they had in administering the elections under the uh, cloud of the pandemic. So Trump is, of course, lying about what the court said. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then asking for the impossible, I guess. The, 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 but it, again, will any, I don't know, will you, you're there. I mean, do any of the three no. Republican gubernatorial candidates, are they are they denouncing Trump's intervention here? Are they no. defending the Speaker of the House?
0: No, my guess is that uh, they're all going to be in the tall grass about all of that. I mean, it's sort of like different, uh, as uh, m- my my fellow cheesehead Bill Leaders writes in The Bulwark, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches, just, you know, which flavor of, of delusional denialism do you want? What radicalism do you you want here? Uh, You know, it is interesting the way that uh, Trump has uh, zeroed in on on Speaker Robin Voss. This, I think, goes back to the sort of the reptilian instinct that uh, Trump has, that he senses weakness. And he looks at Robin Voss and he says, this is somebody who is weak that I can bully because he's sucked up to me in the past. You know, he, he ran down to, was it Alabama, to attend a game with him, he, you know, to, you know, just to kiss uh, Trump's ring. Voss is one of those establishment Republicans that thinks you can, you know, toss a little bit of red meat to the baby alligator and it not grow up and eat you. So he's bankrolled this completely bogus investigation that's turned into a complete joke with a former Supreme Court justice who has repeatedly be-clowned himself. And he's done this, because he thought this would appease the the Trumpist radicalized base. And all it's done is energize them and basically put a big target on his back that he's a wimp and Trump sees him as a wimp and therefore is gonna to continue to beat up on him. I mean, this is the instinct of the bully. And so I think it's gonna go on. Will it have any effect? No, but just to underline your point, there's no evidence whatsoever that any of those drop boxes contained invalid or fraudulent votes in any way. That's number one. Number two, the Supreme Court ruling, there's a lot of language that's quite deplorable in it, but basically what it said was that in order to make this change, you couldn't just do it through the, you know, non-elected Wisconsin Election Commission that the legislature needed to make take action. So that's sort of a separation of powers issue. It does not invalidate the election in any way whatsoever in Wisconsin.
1: But also speaking of Republican speakers of the House, uh, a few hundred miles from you in Arizona, Rusty I was Bowers. To get to who, that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, well goodness I mean it's just striking, right? I mean he testified <laughs> under oath before the January Sixth Committee quite memorably, said afterwards and said that he might still vote for Trump again. You and I criticized him for that, I believe, and he sort of backed off a little for that. But anyway, testified under oath as to factual Things that had happened between November 3rd and January 6th. No one has challenged a single, to my knowledge, fact that he cited, conversation that he testified about. He, it wasn't an opinionated testimony. It was a very restrained one, actually, quite fact based. And so he testified under oath. And for that, he's been censured by the Arizona Republican Party. I mean, and he's the Speaker of the House in Arizona, and he's a respected figure and a quite conservative figure, incidentally. He went along with a lot of stuff that you and I wouldn't have, I think, over the last few years, sure. but whatever. I mean, that just, again, shows the degree, the depth of radicalization uh, in these parties now in Maryland and Wisconsin and Arizona. Yeah, it's not getting better, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about, uh, you know, that and what happened in Maryland, Wisconsin, Arizona. You, you have Herschel Walker down in Georgia. You have Eric Greitens in Missouri. You have Blake Masters in, 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 again and in, also in Arizona. It just keeps going on and on and on. But this story out of I mean, the Rusty Bauer story, I mean, as you point out, the, the Arizona GOP Executive Committee formally censured him, saying that he is, quote, no longer a Republican in good standing in case there was any doubt about what happens when you tell the truth, what happens when you stand on principle, you are excommunicated. So, you know, this, this wasn't an expulsion. It, you know, it doesn't obviously do anything, but, um, and, and again, so Kelly Ward is the chairman down in uh, the Republican party in Arizona, who is a complete nut job. And, uh, the, The reasons for the censure included Bowers' support of a bill giving taxpayer-funded in-state tuition to migrants, his support for billion-dollar education spending bill. Okay, none of which has anything to do with why they actually censured him. They censured him because he he testified. Which brings us to the January 6th committee. Big hearing tomorrow night, prime time, uh, connecting the dots, filling in the blanks about what happened on January 6th, uh, making the case that the president of the United States who takes an oath to see that the laws are faithfully executed. In fact, that uh, was guilty of a dereliction of duty. So, Bill, there's a very interesting analysis in uh, Politico suggesting that, you know, the conventional wisdom about the committee was that, you know, no, you know, no single revelation was going to change Republican minds about Donald Trump. But what happened instead, David Siders writes, is a slow drip of negative coverage. And that may be just as damaging to the former president. Six weeks into the committee's public hearing schedule, an emerging consensus is forming in Republican Party circles, including in Trump's orbit, that a significant portion of the rank and file may be tiring of the nonstop series of revelations about Trump. The fatigue is evident in public polling and in focus groups. And then he cites, our colleague Gus, her Longwell's focus groups, where she finds uh, a group of uh, Trump voters uh, unanimous and saying, yeah, we'd like to move on. So give me your sense of the impact so far of the January 6th hearings, whether or not this is wish casting to
1: say that it's uh, that it's causing Trump fatigue. I think it's causing uh, some Trump fatigue and uh, some People who, I mean, God knows they should have known all this already, uh, but the details (laughs) stick in a way, perhaps, that the more general judgment doesn't. And when it's Bill Barr saying that the guy was delusional and not you or me or even Mm -hmm. Liz Cheney in a speech, or or certainly not Democrats, that that helps. It seems to have, I think, hurt him some with Republican donors and elites. I think uh, the polling suggests that uh, sort of my college-educated Republicans... Having said all that, it's knocked him down from, what, 60% to 50%, basically, in the polls as the first choice for 2024. It's knocked his favorable down from you know 80% to 70%, or probably even higher, 85% to 75%, something like that, which is not nothing and, and matters if you're Ron DeSantis plotting your, your challenge to Trump. But, I mean, in a way, it's unbelievable that he's still as high as he is. But I do think the committee's been important. A, it's just important to get the truth out, obviously, about what happened. And B, it has shown that, you know, it's been an example of actually a competent execution of, of responsibility of Congress, which is kind of good for the country to see that. It, it, Congress has failed so often, and all the parts of government fail so often. Secret Service, places one might have had somewhat high opinion of, turn out to be not great. Uh, to see something working well and people behaving honorably and intelligently in carrying out their duties is a good thing. And i say that with particular reference to Liz Cheney, obviously, I guess, but I also, you and I discussed this a bit before, Speaker Pelosi putting Liz Cheney in such a prominent role that's not an obvious thing to do she took grief from her members for doing it I was on a call with someone some staff people from the one 6 committee and they won't talk about this kind of thing at all but I was joking about hey getting did you have any problems with any of the Democrats saying hey how come she's the star of this you know <laughs> she was kind of late to the party here and uh, you know and some of these Democrats were pretty impressive in the impeachments and so forth and are intelligent people. And, you know, the discipline there has been impressive. So for all the partisanship, there's a little bit of a, there's some willingness here to say, "No, you know, what's best for the country, what's best for the bringing out the truth. And I think the witnesses also, including Rusty Bowers from Arizona and others who, you know, of course, Cassidy Hutchinson will see uh, Matt Pottinger tomorrow night and Sarah Matthews. So I, I think it's, the Wessex Committee hearing has been good for the country beyond the sort of eroding Trump's uh, support a bit in the Republican Party.
0: Well, I I agree with all of that. So you dropped something that I... will come back to the the committee in just a moment, but I I didn't want to gloss over, you know, the emerging story about the Secret Service text messages, which I find to be gobsmacking on so many levels, that the Secret Service now is acknowledging that it uh, deleted all of these uh, text messages after they were requested. Look, I taking a deep breath here i'm i'm trying to think of an innocent explanation for this and i have to tell you bill i'm coming up short
1: no, uh, this totally... this just
0: seems like a disgraceful episode
1: uh, in in the, in secret service history disgraceful and, and i think one can judge based on what we now know purposeful at least at some level among some people the way in which they ask people to deal with it, they say, well we're turning over our, phone, changing our phones or whatever so all you agents these are you know people who work hard and are very busy and have a zillion of these text messages you can imagine what it's like to be a secret service agent i'm leaving aside trump just in life in general right it's a work over five minutes early i mean there must be still, you know tens of thousands of them if they're communicating by text a fair amount of the time you know take a look you know make sure we may go visit this ice cream place so you know we need security there I I was in the white house i know what that's like and it used to a lot of it's done obviously mm-hmm. by people speaking into those earpieces that we're so familiar with seeing this seeing secret service agents wear. but a lot of it these days i imagine is done by tax so so are a zillion of these things and they seem to have if i'm not mistaken on january 25th told the agents you guys have responsibility to go through and save the ones that are relevant and upload them by january 27th i think that's right which is nuts obviously who has time to do that if you if you ask people right. to do that they're just going to assume it's not serious i mean you and i have been in corporate settings where things had to be preserved or were asked to be preserved or unfortunately been in one or two even legal situations where that was the case and if you know what you know how you do that if you're this us secret service you tell the agents you bring your phone here. We will have experts who will go over the phone with you, or even just leave it there and transfer your text messages to a safe, you know, uh, server somewhere. And then you can have your phone back, you know, two days later or, or two hours later, you know, however it works. But the idea that they just ask the agents, "Hey, you know, you're busy. You're on an eight-hour shift to But would you please up go over these messages and upload them to some server?" They don't even people don't. Know how to, I wouldn't know how to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But instructions are available. Well, if you waste you know have another 2 hours to waste going online it's ludicrous and they didn't intend to save them in my opinion and it's really a, i agree it's it's really
0: shocking our colleague Amanda Carpenter sent me a note for uh, my morning shots newsletter we now know that the migration didn't start until January 27th which is after multiple congressional committees made explicit requests to preserve such records. Absurdly, the Secret Service still insisted properly reviewed and turned over all relevant documents, including the ones the agency disappeared. And she says that sounds unbelievable in the truest sense of the word. I completely agree with her there. Okay, so back to the one-six committee. I think one of the things that they have done, and again, it's maybe people take some of this for granted. I agree with you about you know Nancy Pelosi's decision to uh, give such a leading role to Liz Cheney and to Adam Kinzinger, who's going to be you know having his star turn uh, tomorrow night. But also the fact that it feels like all of the witnesses, with the exception of some of the law enforcement officers and one filmmaker, they 're all Republicans, either elected Republicans, appointed Republicans, many of them within trump world tomorrow night we 're going to hear from uh, Matt Pottinger, who was national security aide uh, for all four years of the Trump administration right up till January six the Sarah Matthews, who is you know a, a flack you know in the white house uh, so these are trump 's people, and I think that that has been one of the most powerful things that the, the call is coming from inside the House. These were all of the folks from the Department of Justice who testified, were tr- you know Trump-era appointees, Bill Barr, the ultimate Trump loyalist. I do think that that's, that that's been powerful. The other thing that people like us need to remember is that we pay lots of attention to this stuff. But when you have something on primetime television. Things that you and I may have been talking about for a year and a half will be new to millions of Americans. And that's not nothing. that is that is significant. So I do think this the cumulative weight comes up. But on on the question of whether or not the Trump fatigue has been setting in, and you cited some of the poll numbers. We have the poll out of Florida, which shows uh, DeSantis uh, handily beating Trump in his home state. It is his home state, but there's another poll out of Michigan showing uh, DeSantis within, within the, the margin of error. We're now getting, you know, reports that Glenn Youngkin, who has been the governor of Virginia for about five minutes, is making moves. So, I mean, clearly there's, there's something going on there. So I guess the question comes down to, you know, Trump may be weak, but somebody's got to take him on and it's got to be a one-on-one because if it's a, if it's a crowded field, it's going to be 2016 all over again. So, what do you think? Who takes him on? Does DeSantis blink, or does he pull the trigger to use two cliches in a row? I think
1: people will take him out. I I thought that even months ago, because I just think it's, if you, you know, if you're an ambitious politician and you're you, you don't pass up a moment and you don't know where Trump will be a year from now, even if leaving aside the 1-6 committee, right? If if you're making a decision at the end of 2022. So I, I think DeSantis goes I wouldn't be surprised if Yunkin runs he thinks there's a lane of being a little less harsh than DeSantis and also we just have so much experience you're in Wisconsin Scott Walker in 2015 people who are very well regarded governors yeah. and you know genuinely have a lot of support and raised 30 million dollars or something and then they just kind of blow up you know, on the they watch go anywhere <laughs> to use another uh whatever president John metaphor. Conley. You know. yeah so I mean I think it's it, it would be prudent and Junkin's a one term limited in, in virginia so i don't think it's foolish for these people from their point of view to run they'll oh you'll antagonize the trump people forever i'm not so sure about that they run and they they're polite to trump they just sort of say it's time for a change i think i could win a little more easily uh some of them will be less polite if they're on the liz cheney uh, sort of side of the spectrum but uh christy will run as the slightly less more willing to challenge trump than the Youngkin, who'll be slightly more willing to To be different from Trump than DeSantis and Tom Cotton or someone who actually voted to uphold January 6th. I think it'll be a multi-candidate race. The question of whether, as you say, they then narrow the field in 2023 so that it actually is a little more like a one-on-one in 2024 is, I think, a very interesting question. And I I think there's sort of that may happen more naturally this time than it did in 2015-16, where Trump was an outsider challenger. There wasn't the same sense of just the way the when you're taking on hillary clinton in 2015-16 for the democrats the field did narrow to what alternative this was pretty clear you couldn't split the non-clinton vote so i think that could happen and so i think trump will have a real race i mean i'd still think he's the favorite but uh, but a lot can change also the one thing i'd I'd also mention is i do think november 2022 matters i mean we're going to have an election to which a lot of people are going to focus on you know if DeSantis wins by seven points in florida that will help donors and others say, look, he really is a better bet than Trump. I mean, Trump won by three. If DeSantis ends up in a closer race than people expect, which I think is possible in Florida, and it's two or three, I think if you, you know you think, well, really, is DeSantis any better than Trump? I mean, as a candidate and a lot of the appeal here isn't a substantive appeal against Trump. It's a it's an electability appeal. So I think a fair amount depends on some of what happens. And if, if Trumpism looks like it's politically problematic in 2020 that the most radical trump endorsed candidates go down in states where it looked like they might win i think that does help the non-trump candidates in 2024
0: so and i agree with your analysis here uh, and i'm guessing that the donald trump is saying the same things which is one of the reasons why he might get in early to prevent that uh, you know that that kind of a, a crowded field it also might be one of the reasons why he might hesitate because as we both know the one great fear that Donald Trump has that overwhelms everything else is a fear of actually losing. If he thinks he might lose. So what do you think he's going to do? What do you, what is what are, what are you looking at? What timeline are you looking at?
1: I think he's very likely to run, and I think he's likely to announce, you know, soon, and Labor Day ish. I think it because I think it makes sense from his point of view. Uh, you know, it does probably freeze the, the others a little bit. It makes people more hesitant. If that means if you're getting in, you're getting it against him. If DeSantis doesn't get to say on November fifteenth. What he could say if Trump was still making up his mind, which is well, we don't know who the field's going to be, but I think i've been just real I've just been reelected in Florida. I think I have something to say f- to the nation, and i'm run- i running or I'm planning I'm running or thinking mm-hmm. of running, and Youngkin does the same, and Christie and everyone else. if trump's already announced it's a little harder then you're saying mm-hmm. i'm running against Trump, so I think right. it's in trump 's personal interest, may not be in the republican party's interest to announce early and look most of what's going to happen in november is going to happen anyway based on other kinds of trends and and factors and trump probably figures you might as well take credit for the good stuff that happens he got blamed for the bad stuff anyway you know by people who want to blame him so i i think trump's personal self-interest which is kind of the key to his actions uh, will lead him to announce uh, in september which incidentally is another big wild card for what happens in no- this november though because trump will be mm-hmm. more on the ballot than biden in some ironic way right mm-hmm. i mean uh, or could be at least and that will affect things So an awful lot This is a very unusual off-year election in that respect. That's why I don't quite buy the conventional, well, we always know that in the first off-year, this happens, this tends to happen, history suggests. We've never had a situation like this with Trump lurking and maybe announcing with the Republicans nominating the kind of candidates they're nominating with Liz Cheney, probably going down to a defeat in august which i think will if she does lose which will sort of cement in a lot of swing voters minds the notion of how radical the party's gone it's one thing to nominate mastriani whatever his name is in pennsylvania or this guy in cox in maryland or we'll see what happens in arizona and maybe creighton's that will all add up but then sort of also repudiating Cheney, it just puts kind of the, the the dots that I, so to speak, crosses that T about what kind of Republican Party we're facing. And I so I think the combination of all this, yeah, puts Trump on the ballot and Trumpism on the ballot in this off-year election as much as it puts the incumbent Democratic administration or even the incumbent democratically controlled Congress on the ballot.
0: And you also have another factor, which is the crazy factor, which you talked about uh, with Joe Trippi uh, la- last week. And, and and we're also seeing something kind of interesting happening in the Senate races. Uh, Axios reporting this morning, Democrats across the 10 most competitive Senate races are outraising Republicans by more than $75 million among small dollar donors, those giving less than $200. So this is kind of interesting that you're seeing this kind of surge. And of course, the Republicans have lots of problematic candidates in swing states. Herschel Walker, Eric Greitens, Blake Masters in Arizona, Eric Greitens in Missouri. Uh, And, you know, Axios looks at this and goes, the big picture here is that Trump-induced donor fatigue and other factors are impacting the GOP grassroots, prompting Republican candidates to rely more heavily on high dollar donors. But this would also be a suggestion. Just one of those indicators that that even though, you know, the conventional wisdom is that Republicans are far more motivated this year than Democrats, uh, that's not true among small dollar donors. So does this actually matter?
1: Who are pretty good, have been in the past a decent leading indicator sometimes of, of turnout and stuff. No, I, I I think Democrats may by now, partly because of also Roe v. Wade and stuff, be as motivated as, as Republicans and the extremism in general. You know, someone else pointed out, I can't remember what article it was this morning, that incidentally the, who's getting a lot of these small dollar donations on the right donald trump and his various entities right. he's hoovering up, the,
0: up the money right? he is you know? he's not
1: spending it for any of these right. candidates so if you're a democrat i think you, should, you know it's like encourage them give a lot of money to trump just don't give money to actual candidates who were on the ballot in 2022
0: well i think it's interesting the axios analysis a concerted republican effort to build a small dollar fundraising apparatus independent of trump's brand appears to be faltering well, Democrats are building on the massive grassroots financial success they saw in 2020. Okay, so speaking of uh, Democrats, on this podcast, uh, we have frequently beat up on Democrats for being bad at politics, for stumbling and bumbling, or perhaps being toned down. But our colleague Tim Miller makes a really good case, I think, in, in my Morning Shots newsletter that the House vote yesterday to codify, uh, you know, same-sex marriage and and interracial marriage was was smart politicking. He said, uh, you know, I mean, for, for some reason, the Democrats have spent much of the last 19 months, you know, fighting among themselves. But that wasn't the case yesterday when the House voted to codify the right to marry for gay couples. Every Democrat voted in favor. Only 47 Republicans supported the bill, 157 apparently believing that, that his marriage uh, should be, you know possibly be be revoked by the state so much for freedom. And the case he's making, that Tim is making, is the politics and the policy align perfectly for Democrats. If Chuck Schumer brings the bill up, it may very well attract 10 Republican votes, giving President Biden a big worthwhile win. If it falls short, the Democrats will have another campaign issue to use targeting uh, suburban swing voters and apathetic young voters and the house votes already providing some political opportunity for senate democrats i mean among the the no votes on gay marriage was uh, congressman ted budd the republican nominee for senate in north carolina so he's now on record with a vote that's going to allow the state of north carolina to annul gay marriages and that is not a winner he writes in charlotte let me tell you you know we'll, it won't be the number one voting issue in north carolina but it could be part of a broader campaign to demonstrate how radical the G O P is. And he says, look, uh, this is an interesting template. I mean, imagine if Democrats expanded the expanded the same notion across a host of issues, you know, codifying Lawrence. Uh, which said you can't criminalize private sexual acts, uh, guaranteed access to contraception, a right to abortion in the case of rape and incest, a ban on semi-automatic firearms for people under 21, prescription drug prices. how, how about the Mike Pence Memorial Act of 2022 mm-hmm. clarifying the vice president has no role in overturning an election? Now, would they get 60 votes in the Senate? Maybe. Would Republicans look insane, more insane, if they blocked all of them? Yes, they would. So- your thoughts on this bill
1: i mean it's always almost always good to split the other party if you can right. keep your party together and i think that's that happened in the house it's been amazing how f- few times it's uh, happened in the last year and a half there were other opportunities to do it but the democrats uh, talked themselves into packaging everything to these massive bills which then allowed the republicans to pick the worst part of the bill the one thing they did and to say well it can't be for that but i think Speaker Pelosi has intelligently, finally maybe, but this like, she's always been smarter about this, honestly, than the Senate Democrats, Senate Democratic leadership, you know, pick individual items and let's have a high profile vote on Wednesday on this and let's do contraception on or Tuesday on, on on marriage. Let's do contraception on Thursday. Let's not just have one giant bill, which you can pick the weakest part of and oppose. So I do think this is an important moment. I'm very struck by what Tim says about North Carolina. Tom Tillis, the incumbent Republican senator, who's not for re election this year in North Carolina, said he was inclined to vote for uh, the mm. protection for same-sex and interracial marriage, for that matter, uh, In uh, what it com- if it comes to the floor of the Senate. Uh, that will be interesting because Bud had voted against it in the House. And so, you know, the Democratic candidate in North Carolina can say, hey, look, even this Republican, even the incumbent Republican senator from North Carolina voted for it in Utah all the Republican members of Congress voted for it. Seems Mm -hmm. to me that Evan Evan McMullin, who's running an interesting independent race against uh, Mike Lee and the Democrats stepped down. So he has kind of a real, some chance to get pretty close at least. Well, he is pretty close. I think he has some chance to win. Uh, I don't know, honestly, if the citizenry of Utah is on board with these days with same-sex marriage, but all the Republican members voted for it. Mike Lee will presumably be against it. So Evan McWallan can say, look, I'm here with these Republican members of Congress you just elected and thinking this is a good idea to codify what has in fact been the law of the land for seven years. And Mike Lee's the one who's the extremist and being against it. So I do think it opens up political opportunities. They should do it on a whole bunch of other issues. And maybe they will. I, of course, was then very distressed to see Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, who's a pretty shrewd political guy, usually, I think, saying, Oh, well, I'm not sure we can get to that. We've got to go on recess, you know, we've got a big, a lot of things to accomplish. I mean, really, I mean, how, as uh, were Durbin, I've got to say, who are intelligent people, and I know them both, and I actually you know, respect them as individuals, have just not been very effective politically. It's tough in a 50 50 Senate. I agree with that. But I, I'm just struck by their, uh, I don't know. They just don't seem to be thinking about this in, in a politically no. intelligent way. And it's, it's not like we're, anyone's asking them to abandon their principles. They believe in this. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like this is something contrary that they're supposed to do. This is the right thing to do from their point of view, certainly. And they're still sort of hesitant about doing it. I, I can't really understand that. And then saying publicly, well, the reason is we have to have a four, five, literally five week, I think is what's currently scheduled, yeah, uh, break in August. Really? really? I think most Americans look at that and think, you know what? Maybe you could take a three or four week break or one week or two week break like the rest of us do, you know? Yeah,
0: when you say out loud that your basically your top priority is the oh so critical August recess, that's just right. like what? I mean, right. look around you. I mean, there are things that are actually going on. No, I mean to reiterate what you just said though. There, there was this early addiction on on the part of uh, the Democratic leaders to these omnibus bills that were just packed with all kinds of of things that um, you know. At, at the end of the day, nobody really knew what was when what was in them. They were packed so tight with some good ideas and some horrendous ideas that they were dead on arrival, um, as opposed to you know, these very, very clear votes, you know, have a you you could, you know, have have a big vote on you know, reproductive rights. Or you could say, let's have an up or down vote on the right to abortion in the case of rape or incest. Make people go on the the record. Split your opposition. Guaranteed access to contraception. That's why this was so smart. It was actually an interesting take in the in the, in the Washington Post as well about this. So you and I are both old enough to remember when a decade ago. When the Democratic vice president, who was then Joe Biden, got ridiculed for an alleged gaffe for saying he supported gay marriage and Republicans had used gay marriage as a wedge issue against Democrats. Well, what happened yesterday was, you know, a reversal, you know, a switch in the polarities, because yesterday Democrats used gay marriage to divide the Republicans, splintering them on the issue. So we have gone from a decade ago where Republicans thought this is a great issue for us. We will embarrass and uh, split Democrats to now Democrats are completely united on and it is Republicans who are splintering and Republicans would have to take the, the embarrassing votes. Also, I think the legitimacy of this vote is underlined not just by Justice Thomas's concurring opinion where he says, you know, if we don't recognize a right to privacy in the Constitution for abortion, then we ought to use the same logic to overturn all of these other things. And then you have Ted Cruz who comes out and says, yeah, Burgerfell was uh, was an overreach by the court. And so they are saying it explicitly that this would be their agenda, that they would overturn this. And again, it would be gross political malpractice for Democrats not to take them at their word and not to show a certain amount of urgency
1: about this, right? Yeah, urgency is is what's been lacking in certain ways. And and again, uh, the ones who are most urgent sometimes are the furthest left, which they're entitled to be, but they're probably Their policies aren't wise, usually, or popular often, whereas here you get some urgency for what's pretty much a consensus position in the nation now, and obviously one that the court uh, imposed, you might say, or ratified seven years ago, it already had become the case in many states, of course, and now is on the ballot. I don't know. You're in Wisconsin. That's a fairly socially conservative state, but I don't know. Is it it Mm -hmm. obvious that Ron Johnson is on the right side of that if he, well, I guess he'll vote against uh, same-sex marriage, but I don't know. There are a lot of uh, swing voters in Milwaukee suburbs who probably think that's, you know, like it's been the law for seven years, whatever you thought about that decision as a matter of jurisprudence. We now have it everywhere in the country. The country's not falling apart. Families are not being damaged by the fact that that uh, the some of those families now are, are, are same-sex marriages. Uh, and I don't know it feels to me like it's not an easy vote for these republican senators
0: well exactly and let's go back to the idea of cumulative effect so you can you know some of the smart kids are pointing out that you know abortion is not the number one issue abortion is not necessarily going to move as many votes as democrats would hope and they're probably right about that but it's the cumulative effect of all of these culture war issues that I think will have an effect, or could have an effect, you know, in places like Madison and the suburbs of Milwaukee, where it's not just an up or down vote on abortion. Because I mean, really, quite frankly, here in Wisconsin, it becomes a binary choice. know Republicans will make uh, make sure that abortion is 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 banned. There's already a law on on the on the book. Democrats, I think, will push back. Well, I mean, will will push back against that. But same thing with uh, with gay marriage. So the cumulative effect you have the right to contraception, the right to abortion, um, whether or not you are going to, un- you know, the possibility of annulling gay marriages. All of these things stacked up together, I think will make a difference and do make it more problematic for somebody like Ron Johnson, who is problematic to begin with. But again, and I'm sorry to be kind of a, a broken record on this, a lot depends on uh, who the Democrats choose to run against him. These are choices that are not up or down referendums.
1: No, and precisely because... The Democrats correctly, I think, have moved over to understanding that they have much better chance making these choices in individual states rather than a referendum on the Biden administration, since Biden's, at, you know, God knows, 35 percent approval in Wisconsin, whereas these, you know, the actual races for governor and senator are more like 50, you know, or, or 50, close to 50 50 right now, it looks like and Johnson's not very popular. It becomes more important who you nominate, right? You can't prosecute the extremism argument very well. If you yourself have a lot of stuff on record that a lot of voters look at and think well, that's kind of extreme on the other side. So maybe I'll just, you know, stick with the Mitch McConnell Republicans and in, in my vote here for the Senate. So I think it's not it's been very helpful to the Democrats to nominate mostly, mostly moderate or yeah. I mean Federman's more complicated figure, but even he is not a sort of caricature of a lefty dem you know well uh, I, yes it's statewide and but that it, is the danger here yeah yeah but i think it's really it seems to be the danger in, in wisconsin where uh mandela barnes just has a lot of stuff on record which i think he sincerely believed or believes and is a decent person and all that but it just it's not quite where wisconsin voters are
0: no and and, and ron johnson is not backing off from uh some of the crazy stuff although i will say that the airwaves it's all inflation it's all crime it's all the border all the time uh here in wisconsin bill crystal once again thank you so much for coming back on the podcast we will talk again soon my pleasure charlie the bulwark podcast is produced by katie cooper with audio production by jonathan siri i'm charlie sykes thank you for listening to today's bulwark podcast and we'll be back tomorrow do this all over again